0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Phase podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 33rd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Rick Grinnell, founder and managing partner of Glasswing Ventures. Glasswing, which is an early stage venture capital firm focused on investing in next generation AI startups, just announced its $112 million debut fund. Rick has a proven track record of success in the venture capital industry, where many of his investments have led to an exit. His investment in Equalogic led to an acquisition by Dell for $1.4 billion, which at the time was the largest cash transaction of a venture-backed company. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like how music led him down the path to a career in the tech industry and how he transitioned into venture capital, the story behind Equalogic and the massive acquisition the launch of Glasswing Ventures, the details around his area of focus in terms of making investments, advice for founders who are looking to raise venture capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. I hope you find the show not only entertaining, but useful in terms of the advice shared by each guest. If you do find it useful, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews are what helps a podcast get found in iTunes, and this is where you can help us out. We've made it easy for you to give us a review. Just go to VentureFizz.com backslash review, and it'll bring you to our iTunes page where you can leave us a five-star review from there. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rick. Rick, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Keith. It's great to be here today.
0: Um, Well, to kick things off here, I wanted to talk about your interest and love for music it was very apparent when i was doing some research on you that you play lots of different instruments uh, keyboards guitar bass drums so that tells me there's a, a lot of hidden talent we don't know about so you can can you tell us about your interest in music i'm i'm a hobbyist on the uh, the guitar so I'm i'm jealous
1: <laughs> well i have to say if it weren't for music i wouldn't be in the venture business today and that may sound like a stretch but let me elaborate so okay. i got into keyboards in particular my dad was an organist uh self-taught and uh taught me when i was probably three or four years old how to read music uh simple chords and melodies uh started taking lessons formally when i was seven and did that all through kind of grade school through high school and along the way in middle school our his sixth or seventh grade teacher had an ARP synthesizer and it may sound familiar David Friend I was just
0: gonna say we had David Friend on our podcast like four episodes ago and we talked about that
1: yes yeah, so David Friend who I have had the pleasure of meeting and talking to about keyboards and storage and everything else uh his ARP Odyssey was my introduction into synthesizers so there was one point in time where my middle school teacher let me take it home for a weekend and I started playing with it and this was the olden days of you know analog oscillators and filters and you know the at the time the sky was the limit obviously the technology has increased today to the point where everything is digital and you can do samples of you know natural sounding pianos and whatnot but you know having this weekend experience with an analog synthesizer from ARP was like the greatest thing ever for me. And I just got the bug for electronic keyboards and synthesizers and then started listening to guys like Keith Emerson and Emerson, um,
0: like Homer
1: and, uh, Asia and yes. And all the classic, you know, synth, uh, based, uh, you know, rock bands, Mm -hmm. uh, over time, the, uh, you know styles have shifted obviously if you look at my linkedin or twitter profile now now i'm listening to 21 pilots and edm and a lot of crazy things but uh that keyboard and synthesizer love has always been there so entering uh high school i actually got my first one a yamaha dx7 and played with that and other gear over the years and by 12th grade thought okay i'm gonna go to engineering school get a degree in electrical engineering or computer science and when i'm done with that i'm going to go and work in that world of keyboards or musical gear mm-hmm. and it was one of the reasons i picked mit um if you remember back in the day amara dr Amar bose of bose speaker fame was one sure. of the professors i had the fortune of being in his class My wow he here, was one of your professors he was yeah so he taught the acoustics course Uh, Tom Scholes, the guitarist for the band Boston, who had Uh a band. uh, The band Boston, he had a musical products company as well, which produced something called the Rockman, which was an all analog effects box for guitarists. It looked like a Walkman. It was like the size of a Walkman, but it was an all analog processing signal chain for guitarists called the Rockman. He was an analog guy. I remember he used to record all of his albums, in the analog domain because he thought by digitizing music it somehow ruined the, the you know the, the the sound waves that were being recorded everything had to stay analog so he was an mit guy and it was this ecosystem of mit grads and mit professors that then overlapped with the world of music that intrigued me so when i got into mit i'm like that's where i'm going i want to do research at the media lab there was a guy called todd Macover who's still there who had done some really cutting edge electronic music composition and uh, collaboration with some very famous people like Peter Gabriel that inspired me. Uh, Oddly enough, I got to MIT and then my interest changed. I got into video because video signal processing was much more difficult than audio. Audio is just really one-dimensional. As long as you had enough compute power and memory, you could kind of recreate everything. By the time I got into MIT, this was 88 through 92, my undergrad years, uh, you know, not as much of a challenge as what was happening in video. With video signal processing, video compression, at that point in time, video signals were, you know, standard definition, but still uncompressed, about 45 megabits per second. Mm -hmm. And trying to squeeze that type of content into, remember back then it was ISDN lines, analog lines using 56k modems, Mm -hmm. getting video to be transported over these these networks was extremely difficult. And that was the thing that I thought would be the, the, the problem to solve. So I did my uh, bachelor's and master's thesis work around video signal processing and then ended up going to work for picture tell out of MIT kept music as a side hobby. You know, along the way, I played in a wedding band and I played in a, uh, a campus band called skunk in the house oddly enough (laughs) and had a lot of fun but kind of music became the hobby and video and uh, video signal processing and compression became the you know the primary uh what i would call you know scientific or engineering pursuit
0: got it okay well it's always interesting to hear the background of someone and how they got from a to b so let's launch into that picture tell experience and what that foundation laid for you and then on to your roles after that?
1: Yeah. So I was at PictureTel for a little over four years. I started out in the video research group, working on the next generation of video compression algorithms and video signal processing algorithms that would make standard definition video more easily transported over digital and analog phone lines, primarily digital. So ISDN up through T1 lines and sat literally for hours a day behind a sun spark station writing c code that was basically the test bed for the algorithms that we would then push into the engineering team and then they would make them compact and efficient so that they they could actually run on real hardware not on a spark station um through that time, I became one of the standards leads to push our technology into the inter- international standards groups like MPEG and the ITU. And after you know three, three and a half years of writing standards documents, going to standards meetings, writing this kind of uh, research quality code for the development team, I got tapped to do more customer facing work because I was good at writing code, although I wouldn't say I was ever great at it. I was probably better at explaining our technology to our salespeople and customers and our channel partners. And along the way got tapped by our VP of marketing, Steve Johnson, to help out on occasion with pitches to the marketing team, the sales team, and potential customers, channel partners and the like what we call Video Conferencing 101. And I got involved in a few discussions where the, what I would call the technology uh, overview that I would give and the competitive overview that I would give helped the salespeople win deals. And I got the bug then for being closer to the customer and that sales process. So basically asked Steve, hey, could this part-time thing I've been doing while part of the research team become a full-time? opportunity. And I think within a couple of months had carved out a role as a manager of what they call technical marketing, where I opened up a competitive products lab at PictureTel and was able to do a lot of the white papers and a lot of the presentations that fed the sales team and our channel so that our technology was differentiated from our competitors. And also we were able to then explain what was coming down the pipeline in terms of product um, innovation. So that if we were pitching someone like Ford Motor, which was one of the big deals I got involved with, they knew that if they bought a few million dollars worth of picture tail gear, that within the next year, they were going to get a number of upgrades that would make the quality even better relative to the competition. So that, you know, was really an exciting time for me to, as much as I loved engineering and building technology, that opportunity to help that technology get sold into the customer base was even more exciting. And I think, you know, I always had this business interest. I was always investing in the stock market and I felt like this new role was more likely to move the stock price in a near-term way, as opposed to the research work that I was doing was, you know, two years out. So a little bit more immediate gratification. About a year into that role, uh, Steve Johnson and one of our top audio research guys left and started another company, which became clear one communications in Woburn raised, uh, some series a money. And I think right around the time that series a money closed, I joined as the director of marketing and employee number eight. So I did clear one for a year, which was a fun ride because I was building something from scratch.
0: What was and, their product? I don't remember clear one. Yeah. Uh, so they were, uh,
1: initially in the audio conferencing space and uh, taking a page out of the Polycom story because I don't know if you remember but Polycom was founded by Brian Hinman who was one of the two founders of PictureTel. Brian and Jeff Bernstein and MIT grads who uh, did their thesis work for Dave Stalin who was also my thesis advisor. They started PictureTel together in the mid 80s and Brian along the way wanted to move out West and start a new company for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into and avoided all the non-compete issues and IP issues by first going into audio conferencing instead of video conferencing. And then over the years, Polycom became a video conferencing company by acquiring via video out of Austin. And then ultimately they acquired Picturetel. before all of those events happened when Polycom was really just audio and they had just bought via video to move into the video conferencing space, we said, you know what, it worked for Brian out West with Polycom. Uh, let's go and try to do it again on the East Coast and start Clear One. And, and really one of the key you know, in, reasons we did that or what initiated this is, remember US Robotics had at the time the number two audio conferencing product on the market. And when 3Com bought USR, they got out of that audio business, so there was this, um, you know, large universe of of channel uh, partners that USR had that no longer had a product to sell. Polycom had their channel, so we basically said, "Hey, we can go and you know take the uh, you know the whatever you want to call it, the channel capacity that's now vacant, and build a, our own uh, advanced audio conferencing product with all the echo cancellation, noise reduction." Capabilities and once we've established uh, established ourselves in audio, we'll ultimately move into video. Uh, I stayed for a year. It was a lot of fun, one of the best years of my life. Uh, but at the time, you know, I was 27, about to turn 28. It was when most of my friends were already in business school or were applying. And if I looked around at the folks that were my superiors so to speak or my my bosses at uh, Clear One and Picture tell they had MBAs and they weren't necessarily just folks like me who had a master's in electrical engineering so I thought okay uh, now's the time if there ever is one to apply to a few business schools so, you know did my Gmats and started making uh, you know uh, a few attempts at applying to a couple of the, the the better business schools got into Harvard and thought, okay, you know at Harvard MBA long term is probably more valuable than my equity in uh, Clear One. So I decided to do the MBA program full time. I kept working for Clear One part time during the first year, and uh, ultimately, through my years of business school, they got acquired. Got it. Okay. Then, so they got acquired by Gettner Communications, and then Gettner rebranded themselves Clear One. I think they still are selling product. Every now and then I've seen their ads in different uh, you know, tech uh, publications.
0: So how did you get into venture?
1: Uh, a little bit of luck and uh, being in the right place at the right time. So I wanted to try venture as a summer job during the two years of business school. Not because I ultimately wanted to be a VC, but I had done... Uh, a large company, which is part of the background we skipped, I was an intern co-op student for General Electric in Niskayuna, New York at the R&D Center when I was in my sophomore, junior, and senior years at MIT and realized as much as GE was a great company today, maybe a little questionable, although I hope they find their footing because it's, you know, to me, one of those bellwether uh, companies, but, uh, you know, I'd done a large corporate I had done a mid-market public company with PictureTel, and I had done an early stage raw startup with ClearOne, which, as I said, when I joined, had eight employees. It grew to about 40 by the time I went to business school. But I had the bug, I think, like a lot of people did in that 98 to 2000 timeframe to ultimately start my own company. And I had done engineering work. I had done product management work. I had done marketing work. I had helped the sales team, although I had never been a salesperson, something I actually wish I had done at some point but I'd never raise money. And I thought, well, a summer job in VC would probably give me some insight as to how VCs evaluate opportunities. It would probably help me build my network within the venture community and uh, you know, would just be a really great learning experience. And first thought about going out West, I remember doing the typical HBS West Trek trip to Silicon Valley during uh, the, I guess, early spring semester of first year as people were trying to line up their summer jobs. And uh, I don't know if you remember Jim Swartz, one of the founding partners of Excel. He had been one of the board members and investors at PictureTel. So I'd been able to meet him back when I was in research. And that was one of the great things about that research job at PictureTel is I got to meet Vinod Kosla, Jim Swartz, and other board members because they would come into our lab to see where the company was heading. Two to three years out, and again, I was the guy who was fairly good at taking very complex technology and making it sound simpler. So I would usually tag team with my boss to explain where the tech was heading. And so I went out to see Jim as part of that West Trek. Jim sorts at Excel, and he basically said, "Rick, you've been in Boston your entire career, and I know it's only been about five years, but uh, you know we have a whole, uh, you know." Uh, group of west coast students out of stanford and other places that grew up in the valley they know the valley and if i'm going to hire a summer intern and if dfj is going to hire a summer intern they're probably going to hire somebody with that rolodex and that experience you should stay out east you know i'm not trying to discourage you but if i were you i would focus on the east coast came back from that trip thinking huh all right you know i was hoping to try the, the valley since that is the epicenter of the vc world but uh you know turn the attention to to Boston and oddly enough one of my section mates at hbs had been tapped on the shoulder by fidelity ventures because he'd been at battery uh, ventures prior to going to hbs this is a guy by the name of jonathan roosevelt and jonathan, jonathan said hey rick uh, fidelity's looking for somebody and uh, they thought i might want to do it. i don't want to do venture anymore i did it before don't want to do venture again but i put your name in the hat because I know you wanted to do venture, you should talk to them. Within a few days, got a call from uh, uh, Rob Ketterson and Ann Mitchell at Fidelity and got lined up for an interview process and ultimately won their slot for their summer associates position. So for, uh, I guess, about four months from May through early September of 99, I worked at Fidelity Ventures.
0: Okay. Okay
1: looked at a number of different opportunities. Some of them, uh, you know, ended up being winners for them. A company called Service Metrics was one that I did a little bit of diligence on while I was there, did some other things that they didn't invest in. But, you know, it was a pretty interesting summer, getting to see what venture was all about, getting to meet some of their portfolio companies and getting to collaborate with some of their executives on the technology side, and also some of the peers that they had at other venture firms. So, you know, for all the things that I was hoping to get out of the summer role, i I think I got I got it, and then some. so and
0: it was, this, and this led to your actual career of being in venture for the rest of,
1: yeah, so there was a little interlude in the middle there where I went to go work for one of their portfolio companies, starting the second year of business school. So, While at Fidelity Ventures, I got exposed to Adaro, which Mm -hmm. was an Akamai competitor in the content delivery space. Okay. Adaro was doing latency reduction for international requests or internet, you know, uh, website requests, whereas Akamai at the time was really a shock absorber handling peak load Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, subtle nuance, but a different story. And... You know, unfortunately, Adaro was about six to nine months behind Akamai in its maturity. So, you know, the fall of 99, when I was working for Adaro as an intern, while still finishing my second year of business school, you know, Akamai goes out, hugely successful IPO in the fall of 99, gets to a $30 billion market cap. And uh, Adaro, you know, decides, okay, looking at that, we should go public you know it doesn't seem like a lot of revenue is uh required (laughs) which we didn't have and you know public markets were absorbing a lot of tech companies that were almost Mm pre-revenue so morgan stanley had taken out akamai so goldman sachs and robbie stevens and solomon smith barney converge on adaro and uh, basically uh, with their guidance we grow really fast and People like me who are interns get hired during their second year of business school full time with the agreement that, hey, work as much as you can, as close to 40 hours as possible. But when you graduate, you know, you are going to work your butt off Mm -hmm. and we'll, you know, uh, you know, consider you full time now. So there were a group of us out of Sloan and other uh, and HBS. I was at HBS. There's another group out of Sloan that got hired on. And we literally, when I joined were uh, As an intern, there were less than 30 employees. We grew to almost 250. By March of 2000, we were supposed to go public in uh, the May-June timeframe of 2000. At that point, Akamai was trading at $30 billion. I think the assumption was we would you know, maybe go out at a tenth of that valuation, plus or minus. And then April 4th of 2000 occurred, the whole market tumbled, the Mm -hmm. IPO for the spring got parked, and then it never happened. You know, the company ended up being sold in two pieces, part of it to Inc to me in December of 2000, and the remainder went to Colt Telecom out of the UK in uh, uh, mid-01, if I remember correctly. So that's, you know, the kind of the last... Startup experience I had uh, prior to joining venture so now back to the fidelity experience one of the executives that I had the pleasure of working with during that summer experience was uh, Paul Cirillo who ran fidelity interactive and Paul ultimately came into uh, the fidelity ventures team during the fall of uh, 99. and then got tapped, if you fast forward, by TD, Toronto Dominion, to start what became TD Capital Ventures. Uh, Paul connected with me as Adaro's first uh, piece was being sold to Ink to me and said, look, I'm trying to assemble a team to do an early stage fund that will be a little bit contrarian. You know, a lot of the uh, venture Firms in town are circling the wagons and protecting their existing portfolio companies, but not necessarily doing a lot of new investments. And uh, we're basically going to have a new fund, $150 million to go off and invest in new opportunities, uh, you know, in the, you know, the bottom of the market. And let's just hope, you know, the bottom doesn't last that long so that we ride the next cycle up. And, you know, given what had happened to Adaro, given what had happened to most of my friends in the startup world, having the opportunity to join a new venture fund with a new pool of capital, working for a guy that I knew and respected seemed like an amazing opportunity. Now, oddly enough, I don't know if most people know this, so this may be a little secret that people will find out through this podcast, but when I joined... TD Capital Ventures, my original intent was to get back into the startup world. Mm-hmm. And I would basically invest through the first fund through the investment period, or at least a portion of that investment period, say, you know, three, four, five years, uh, find my favorite opportunity in that portfolio and jump back in on the management team mm-hmm. that was the original intent because i had loved being in smaller companies i loved the Adero experience even though it didn't work out i loved clear one and i thought that was my calling was to go back to a product company and you know focus on that with a team that was all united around a common goal and uh you know here i am today it's been uh over 18 years now and I am absolutely loving my venture job. And, you know, particularly now that Rudina and I have started Glasswing, you know, I'm having the time of my life. But back then, I really thought that it would be, you know, a few years to to land in a portfolio company and take on an executive role.
0: And the firm eventually morphed, if I'm correct, that this ended up being uh Fairhaven, right? That's kind of the transition from TD to Fairhaven was the same entity. Is that correct?
1: Uh, different entity. So TD Capital Ventures was a captive entity, captive fund of Toronto Dominion Bank. Mm. It was launched uh, in early 01. It was uh, you know, formulated in late 2000. And if you remember correct, I remember back then the banking regulations were different. Bank holding capital regulations in particular were different. So by the time we were ready to raise a second fund, you know, the bank, uh, you know, had different rules to play by and they had a new CEO. So they had no desire to keep a, you know, an early stage venture fund on their balance sheet, which was something, you know, they had done previously with other private equity groups. We were one of five. They had later stage funds. They had a communications and media fund down in New York. They had a few others. You know, they had all been seeded directly by the bank. And then over the years, they opened them up to outside investors, but they were, you know, run by the bank. Mm -hmm. That couldn't continue to exist, given the change regulations and honestly, the change strategy that the new CEO had and the management team had. So as it became time to think about raising fund two, you know, we worked with the bank to separate and create Fairhaven. So we were able to continue managing that first portfolio. They seeded the second fund and we then spun out with their capital and another entity's capital, and then went on to raise uh, $250 million uh, by the middle of 2008. So that became Fairhaven capital. And uh, you know, that was where uh, you know, i Basically, uh, got more experience from uh, 2007 when we spun out through the end of 2015.
0: Well, you've had lots of uh, successful investments throughout your career, but there's one in particular that I wanted to focus on, and that's Equal Logic, which I just don't think gets enough credit in the Boston tech scene, uh, which at the time of the acquisition was a $1.4 billion cash exit by Dell, which This is uh, 2007, if I'm correct.
1: The LOI was signed in November of 07. The deal closed in Q1 of 08.
0: So I know uh, Equalogic was potentially doing a roadshow, thinking of going public. I'm sure it was a difficult decision. Do we take an acquisition offer by Dell or do we take this company public and potentially it's more valuable in the public markets? But hindsight... You must look back and be like, wow, timing of that decision couldn't have been any better based on the fallout of 2008.
1: Absolutely. And and there was a lot of debate at the board level uh, whether we should take the Dell offer. It went back and forth through, uh, I guess, the first week of November. I think we signed the LOI the first uh, Saturday or Sunday of November. The roadshow was supposed to start that following week led by Goldman and Credit Suisse. And uh, the ultimate decision to take the all-cash offer from Dell was probably the best thing we could have ever done. Because if you think about it, the transaction closed in early 08. If we had gone public, there would have been a lockup. And we would have gone right into that disaster of 08 when the recession happened. So, uh, And you think about what the stock market did during that period. So, to lock in a $1.4 billion all cash offer and uh, reward the employees and the investors and uh, the management team and everyone else who was critical to the success, I think it's just an amazing story.
0: And what did the company do? I mean, I I know, but I think if you know people don't remember the name, and this company was based in Nashua, New Hampshire. So, what was it about right. the team and the market and their product that attracted you to uh, make an investment?
1: Yeah, that may be part of the reason people don't remember it as much, because this was not a uh, you know a high-profile downtown Boston or Cambridge company. You know, mm-hmm. it was a much more what I would call humble, quieter, just. You know, great uh, executing—if that's a phrase—but you know, a, a well-oiled machine that wasn't thumping its chest necessarily, but continue continuing to produce quarter after quarter great results. So, what did they do? They were the world's—they uh, produced the world's first smart iSCSI-based storage appliance that took. A lot of the high-end features and functions that were provided by companies like EMC for their storage area network products and brought it down market so that a mid-market IT administrator could essentially become a storage administrator. So all of the sophisticated knowledge that was required at the high end to provision a brocade fiber channel switch and connect that and provision it with different arrays from EMC, all very expensive, all very complicated, and not well automated when you needed to add more capacity. These things didn't necessarily load balance automatically. Equalogic did that for the lower end of the market. So that whether it was setting it up out of the box, took minutes so that you could have an application talk to the storage array. If you started to run out of capacity, you could buy another array and it would automatically load balance and all the failover uh, settings would automatically provision themselves. So it was very simple storage that was delivered via very intelligent software running on the array. And what's funny is when I first met the company in 2002, I think conventional wisdom was, oh, my goodness, you know, another hardware company and storage, you know, uh, given where we are with, you know, the uh, dot-com bubble bursting and capital efficiency and, you know, the world not needing more hardware, uh, you know, NetApp being a well-regarded company, EMC being a well-regarded company. What were you thinking? Hmm. But this wasn't just uh, another box company. It was really that software innovation and the intelligence that made this a compelling story. But uh, as you know, and you've probably heard, this company, because it was a box company and because of the time they were uh, raising money in, it was hard for them to raise. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, And it was a very capital efficient company throughout its lifecycle, raising, I think, 52 million all in.
1: That's right. If you think about now what a typical storage (laughs) or even a high flying endpoint security company raises, you know, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And they did it on $52 million of thrifty, uh, you know, uh, capital efficiency, you know, what that team was able to pull off with very few stumbles along the way. Now, every company has stumbles and they had some, but, you know, they just were executing very, very well. And uh, when, you know, the negative things happened, they had the resiliency to recover quickly. You know, there were a couple of CEO changes. Don Buhlens ended up coming in to, uh, you know, take the company to the promised land at the end of the day. He was the one that uh, was there for the, uh, you know, the end of the story when the company exited and it was Don plus the team of, you know, Paul Long and Peter Hayden and Paul Koenig and John Joseph and others, uh, Kirk Bowman, it was really a team effort. And that's one of the things I can't say enough is that there are those that may have a little bit more glory out of that story than others. You know, people like Don Bulens and Paul Long, but there was a deep bench and, um, You know, both at the management team level and at the level below that, the people who wrote the code and worked on the marketing team and on the sales team, Uh, just a a fantastic team that I think every company would love to have.
0: Yeah, it's all about the team, isn't
1: it? Absolutely.
0: Today, you're part or you co-founded Glasswing Ventures with Rodina Susseri and then Sarah Faye ended up joining along, too. And you recently announced a, your, your first fund, $112 million fund. So what prompted you to start Glasswing? And what's its focus?
1: Yeah, it's very exciting, right, to start a new venture fund. Um, so what prompted it? So, uh, you know, Radina and I, you know, we met back in 2003 when she was a student at Harvard Business School. And I was trying to get on a panel that she was organizing for Cyberposium. And based on that initial introduction, was just, uh, you know, overwhelmed by the intelligence, charisma, and just sheer hustle that, uh, you know, Rudina has. And hired her as an associate intern in the uh, spring of 2004 to work with us, and then convinced her to go get some operating experience, which she then pursued at Microsoft. So, Rudina came back to boston when we pulled her out of microsoft in 2007 as we were about to launch Fairhaven, so bigger fund more capital we needed more people on the team and Rudina was one of the you know strongest uh, people and, and greatest talents i'd ever met so she was the first call i made when it became clear we needed more horsepower on the team and uh, you know as you know we grew uh that Fairhaven team uh, with some other folks along the way as well. So fast forward from 08 through 15, Rudina and I did a lot of the enterprise investing. She did more enterprise SaaS. I focused more on cybersecurity. And, you know, 2015 came along and it was time to start thinking about a next fund. And really the early signs were there around artificial intelligence, although oddly enough, when we first started talking to some limited partners about the idea of starting a, you know, smaller, more focused AI-based fund or AI-focused fund, people laughed and said, geez, that doesn't seem like a big enough market opportunity. Isn't that a niche? Isn't that too dreamy? Are you talking about Terminator robots or the Matrix or something? <laughs> we said no. You know, from our experience, you know, what I had done at uh, Prelert, which was in the predictive analytics anomaly detection space, you know, acquired by ElasticSense, what Rudina was doing at companies like SocialFlow and CrowdTwist with AI under the hood for their, uh, you know, SaaS software products. It became clear that there was this machine learning AI hook uh, that was going to really drive value in all of the future software companies that one would invest in and, and for the products that would be adopted, whether it was a consumer product or an enterprise product. And as you know, we focus primarily on enterprise technologies. But uh, whether, again, it was uh, the next generation of security products or Salesforce automation, marketing automation products, all the way up through really advertising and media, we could see where AI would deliver greater value, greater efficiency. And in the case of what I do in cybersecurity, you know, greater levels of detection and defense and and response. So, um, you know, we decided because, you know, Fairhaven was a broader uh, fund that did many things. We did uh, software, consumer, and enterprise. We had a materials and industrial practice. There were some other things we did. We thought in order to really focus on this AI-enabled ecosystem, We should do it by via uh, a new, you know, vehicle. So we left Fairhaven and started Glasswing in uh, 2016. Basically started on all the the foundation work to create the marketing materials to do some pre-marketing discussions with LPs. And then, as you know, we started raising capital in kind of the mid two thousand and sixteen timeframe, and finished here recently. And as you mentioned, we announced a hundred and twelve million dollar fund, which is fantastic for you know a three partner firm doing early stage, you know pre seed through seed to early A stage investments.
0: And what's your particular area of focus? Like what types of companies are you targeting within the AI sector?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing cybersecurity-related investing since 2003. You know, in the earlier days, um, you know, I obviously was doing storage with Equalogic, and then I developed it in the SSD acceleration arena. But, you know, the bulk of my investing over the years has been Companies like PreAlert, which was anomaly detection applied to security events, resilient systems, I seeded and even incubated in our old office. You know, now part of IBM as part of their incident response and uh, security orchestration uh, uh, product line. Uh, you know th- that world that I lived in mostly in the old days has become the primary focus today. So I'm really looking at AI-enabled security products that span everything from next-generation defenses, uh, you know, cloud-based security, everything that would be on-prem from the firewall to the endpoint, and then really looking at intelligence that pulls all of these disparate solutions together. So what you might think of as next-generation SIM, So security incident and event management plays. Uh, I'm fascinated by a world that hasn't quite taken off yet around security uh, benchmarking. You know, one of the things that I don't think most chief information security officers have a good handle on is whether they have deployed their products in an optimal manner, whether they bought the best products, whether they have been integrated properly, and whether they've been optimized to work together and then taking that, what you'd call that uh, stack and the provisioning of that stack, and then comparing it to the security events that they're seeing on a daily or weekly basis. So it's some combination of data around how you're provisioned, you know, how you're defended and how you're provisioned, and then what you're seeing in terms of attempted attacks and uh, attacks that actually were successful and then comparing that to your ecosystem so it's this almost a uh, concept like moneyball from the Oakland A's <laughs> back a few years to take a page out of baseball so you know moneyball worked for a mid-market team to compete against the high budget teams like the Yankees who had the best players and had uh, you know all the tools at their disposal and i think in the world of security not everyone can be Goldman Sachs, or not everyone can be a Bank of America where they've got vast security budgets, they hire the best security people, and they probably have their act together as as much as anyone on the planet. If you're a mid-market bank or a mid-market um, healthcare provider... You don't have those tools. You don't necessarily have the knowledge. You certainly don't have the budget to spend on defense and remediation. But you would, in theory, believe that there's probably for the budget that you are constrained to that you could optimize more effectively than you are today. So I I think of this as, you know, the leaderboard or it's like the olden days of Keynote where people were comparing their website statistics to their peer group. This would be comparing your security hygiene, your provisioning of your firewall of your endpoints to your peer group on a de-identified basis using AI and then looking at the events that you're seeing. So number one benefit is optimizing what you already have in place. Number two is as you're thinking about replacing your firewall or your endpoint technology, understanding for a particular budget which new product might work more effectively in the context of everything else you have and then number three inevitably when you are attacked and now you have to go with your tail between your legs as a cso to the board of directors and explain what happened you actually have a report that says look board of directors i understand that what happened is bad bad for the company but here's our peer group we were in the top decile for performance and defense I shouldn't lose my job for being in the top decile and still having a hacker from a, you know, some rogue nation state coming in and, uh, you know, defeating our defenses, you know, no one could have defended against this attack. So there's a little bit of a CYA in that reporting, which I think ultimately is going to become a requirement, just like compliance reporting has become a requirement to boards I think there's going to be this concept of, you know, the security profile that you have uh, will also, you know, become uh, a a, a key report. So as I talk to CISOs in the industry, they're all interested in this. There's been this road bump over the years or, uh, you know, speed bump over the years of sharing data. People always are worried, is it really identified? But at some point, the mid-market is becoming so overwhelmed with the incidents they're seeing. They have to rely on something like this to better defend.
0: Well, one of the ways that Glasswing is differentiating itself amongst your peers in the venture community is um, your Connect Council. So can you share a little bit more information about your Connect Council?
1: Yeah. So there's a great Connect and a Protect Council. But you only asked me about Connect, so we'll start there. Or well,
0: actually, because you know there's multiple councils, right? Right. So I guess the whole – I I thought the whole thing was Connect, but there's Well, different... there's
1: Connect and Protect, but
0: – Okay. Let's talk about. Also,
1: we have councils, which councils, are basically yes. advisors on steroids. We think I think everyone out there says they have an advisory board, right? But a lot of times those advisory boards are window dressing. What we sought to do from day one was to attract some of the world's greatest thinkers in AI, both from the commercial world, from the academic world, folks who were former CEOs, folks who are current CEOs, leading university professors other great minds from the industry, salespeople, marketing people, bringing them all together to basically extend our reach and also add value to our companies. So, you know, there are these two different silos. There's the Connect Council. The Connect Council is more tied into what you would call the application uh, and AI uh, uh, ecosystems. The Protect Council are really folks that are focused on cyber. Obviously, there's some overlap here because some of the AI people are security people. But we've tried to create these these segments where there's a group of AI experts, other folks who are expert in the world of infrastructure and software, and then this pool of folks who are expert in uh, the world of
0: cybersecurity. Got it. That's awesome. That's such a value add.
1: Yeah, they do. So, So they... Bring Deal Flow. They help us do tech diligence on some of the bleeding edge AI companies and their, uh, you know, techniques, their algorithms, uh, the data that they're training their algorithms on. We have people who are business model experts. We have folks who are just corporate buyers, and you know, are the voice of the customer and can help better refine. The go-to-market and the pricing of our companies you know it's a very valuable group of people and what's interesting is that they constantly ask how do i do more a lot of times you find advisors saying hey you're hitting me too much we're not seeing it with these group of people it's it's amazing
0: well, what advice would you give to founders that are looking to raise venture capital and uh, what's the best way to get on your radar screen
1: So for raising capital, I I think the basics you've probably heard time and time again, just to get in front of a venture capitalist, whether it's Sarah or Dina or myself, or whether it's someone at another firm, I think step one is find a way to get a warm introduction. We will look at cold introductions, although thinking about the entrepreneur and their ability to sell their product down the line. Step one is how do you sell the investment opportunity? And obviously you get points for finding a way to me (laughs) or to Radina or Sarah that's warm. Finding someone who's already in the portfolio, finding someone we've worked with previously, finding someone who's just connected to me through LinkedIn and getting that introduction to me is a lot better than just sending me a cold email saying, Rick, I read about you and the fund being raised. And uh, we'd love to tell you about my new security product. And oh, by the way, it has AI in it. So number one is always find a warm introduction, if at all possible. I think uh, number two, you know, there is, uh, you, you know, not to dwell on, uh, you know, the, the uh, presentation itself, but there is a package around how you do sell what you're hoping will invest in. So it's again, it's a proxy for how well will you sell to your customer base down the road. So obviously, I wouldn't spend a lot of money on, uh, you know, PowerPoint designers, (laughs) and things like that, especially as a pre funded early stage company. But I do think, you know, the, the there is some art to the pitch and having the right level of uh, information on the team and having for an early stage company that is very raw, having some great advisors. It's amazing how many points you get in the venture world by being able to find one or two or five people who are in your market, who you can wave as advisors to your company, that in the absence of having You know a a more mature board of directors that will come with funding or having customers at least being able to attract people that are willing to take a call you know to me that shows that you are doing something that is is valuable that somebody out of the industry and hopefully it's somebody that has some name recognition is willing to spend their scarce time with you advising you so i think that advisor uh relationship is important Makes sense. And and then Um, obviously for more mature companies, then you start thinking about, okay, who are some of the beta customers or the pilot customers? And for slightly more mature companies, who are the initial customers and how did you get to them? Are they just, you know, family, friends, or are they folks that you actually had to go through some reasonable level of sales discipline? Got it.
0: And, and how is the uh, the tech scene these days in the Boston ecosystem?
1: Boston is better than I've ever seen it. I mean, the the ecosystem that we play in today is uh, so strong. And um, I mean, I, you know that from what you you do this every day. I mean, I think this you have true. more to write about than you probably ever have. And it's, it's, it's extremely positive. And you think about all of the different neighborhoods now in, in the Boston area. That are thriving with startups it's not just kendall square anymore now you know it's not just seaport now there's a cluster growing in north station and mm-hmm. uh, you know obviously we're in downtown crossing right now and there's a number of startups that are in office towers that 10 years ago you never would have thought would have startup action
0: yep so true there's a ton ton going on
1: and, and the burbs still you know despite it being uh, i think somewhat tougher to be out there they're still doing well
0: Yep. Yeah. You know, we still, still,
1: I still have a company in Waltham and I keep asking them, when do you move into the city? Hang <laughs> out in Waltham. Really? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Well, still like Waltham, Burlington, Lexington, Needham, right. Newton. Like there's still pockets of tech companies out there. So yeah, it's everywhere still. All right, Rick. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and for sharing your background story, your words of wisdom, and obviously excited what you guys are up to with Glasswing. Anything that you'd like to share with our audience as closing remarks? Well,
1: it's been a pleasure to spend time with you here on this podcast, Keith. I really appreciate you uh, reaching out and uh, always an honor to talk to you. You know, I think, you know, the number one, you know, piece of advice is uh, don't ever let, you know, a venture capitalist or anyone else tell you that your idea doesn't work or your go to market is, uh, you know, necessarily a dumb idea. You know, keep plugging away. As we started before the mic went on, you know, one of my heroes is Rafael Nadal, and he plays every point as if it's the most important point and doesn't necessarily stress about some of the uh, near-term obstacles. Even when he's down love 40, you know, he'll find a way point by point to claw his way back. And I just find that very inspirational. And I would tell startup executives entrepreneurs and uh you know anyone in the tech scene you know if you believe in what you're doing keep plugging away like he does and i think
0: uh you know good things will come very very true well rick thanks again for taking the time i appreciate it
1: all right thank you